The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted to welcome my guest today, Mr. Frank Baker. He is an award-winning media education consultant who has been recognized for his lifelong work in media literacy by UNESCO's Global Alliance Partnership for Media and Information Literacy. He has conducted hundreds of media literacy workshops for educators and students across the United States and internationally. He has also developed a nationally recognized media literacy resource website, simply www.frankw baker.com. He holds a journalism degree from the University of Georgia. Among his many accomplishments, he has worked in television news as an administrator in the Orange County Public School System, that's Orlando, Florida. In 2018, he was interviewed and featured in Robel Films' documentary, For the Love of Food. And I recently heard him speak about the diet industry and media literacy and thought he could help us pull back the curtain on some of those diet industry advertising tricks and more. So welcome, Frank. Thank you so much. So we're going to dive into media literacy. And I need to know that with your background, you have worked in media, you have worked with school districts. What led you to want to do media literacy education? That's a great question. And I can tell you that after working in television news, I found myself working for the public school system in Orlando, Florida. And I worked in that school district's media department. Uh, Among my responsibilities at the time, and this is mid to late 80s, was to purchase the films and videos that teachers would use in the classroom. And after being in that job for a year or so, I decided to take a week and go sit in some of those classrooms and to witness teachers using the materials that we were purchasing for them. So at the end of the week, I'm writing a report for the superintendent. And I was really frustrated. In that entire week, I did not see one teacher engage any student in any critical viewing skills. I didn't see a teacher pose questions before they played the film or the video. I didn't see a teacher introduce any vocabulary. I didn't witness any teacher say to the students, be sure you notice the visual on the screen when they talk about symbiosis, for example. And I didn't see any teacher ask students for any understanding, any post-viewing questions at the end of the video or the film. And so I got back to my office and began investigating critical viewing skills as a part of something larger called media literacy. In fact, I might ask your audience to Google the phrase critical viewing skills, because from my perspective as a media literacy educator, I don't see critical viewing skills being taught in our colleges of education, and thus those teachers entering the classrooms are not trained themselves to teach students how to think critically, to think and to analyze critically. It's We call it active viewing skills now as opposed to passive viewing. So that got me started 
to begin reading everything I could about media literacy. And at the time, when I was in Orlando, there were 150 schools. So this was a large school district. And I began working with school librarians. And this was a time when the computer was entering the classroom. So there were many opportunities to um, get those librarians up to speed. And here we are in 2022, and a lot of them are already up to speed. Mm. Well, on your website, you share a little bit about your own history, and you say that everywhere you go, teachers tell you that their students believe everything they read, see, and hear, but that they aren't applying the critical thinking skills that they need to become active, engaged, intelligent citizens and consumers of information. You also say that today's students really don't know how what they see on the screens got there. And that's your job, isn't it, with media literacy education? Yeah, it is. But it's also the, the teacher's job. I think one of the things that I've noticed in my many years in this field is we expect students to understand everything that we put on the screen in a classroom. And that's not always the case. And so even a documentary has a point of view. I wrote a film study guide to To Kill a Mockingbird because I wanted teachers who use that film to use it better, to understand why did the director put the camera here? Why is, is the music designed to elicit a certain emotion? How does costume and set design communicate? Teachers, for the most part, have not been trained in how to do that. And so I like to tell people, we all remember The Wizard of Oz when Toto pulled back the curtain to reveal there was a man behind the curtain. Well, I'm like Toto. I want to pull back the curtain on how the media work, because for the most part, teachers and students don't know how the media work. I worked in television news prior to working for the public school system, so I know what it's like to put together a newscast, for example. But people who watch the news don't think about the process And I think that a big part of teaching media literacy is understanding the process. How was this made? Who made it? Uh, What did they use? What did they not use? What techniques are being used to, you know, elicit a certain reaction from us? In a workshop I did recently, I showed some commercials which were designed to elicit fear. Think about that home security commercial that you might have seen on television or a political campaign ad that uses fear as an emotion to motivate the voter, to motivate the buyer. Mm. You know, we met decades ago. It was at a media literacy education conference. And one of the things that struck me as an aha there was that everything has a bias. Yeah. And yet we're taught that news should be objective. And even in scientific reports that we write, we need to be objective and unbiased. And yet there is bias in everything. And it's clear today that a lot of our students cannot identify bias. Here in South Carolina, where I reside, middle school and high school students have both been shown to be weak in identifying bias, and that's based on the last three years of the state test. They're also weak at assessing the credibility of information. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson famously said, I'm paraphrasing here, the health of a democracy depends on an informed electorate. Well, what happens if 
the electorate is ill-informed, if they are media illiterate. That's my fear as we record this event, that we are in a stage now where too many people, including young people, believe what they hear without question. They don't stop to reflect or to verify or to validate that information. So certain social media sites have a certain amount of credibility, and and I don't believe they deserve that credibility. And there's lots of pressures, as you know, by Congress and others to get the social media sites to police their content. Well, I'm here to say they can't do it. They do not have the capacity. Too many people right now, as we speak, are manipulating a headline, a photo, or a video, which they're going to post, which can be seen in a millisecond by thousands, if not millions of people. And we all know that there are stories of people who have been harmed, if not killed, by rumors on social media that people read that they thought was true. So we have a lot of work to do. We do. And I entered this area around childhood obesity issues, smoking cessation, body image, and when I was working in public health areas. But I continue to apply media literacy in just about everything that I do, moving now into environmental and climate and agriculture education. But I thought what we might do just for fun is to put some of these concepts into action based on your excellent recent webinar, looking simply at the way diets are posed to women. And of course, boys have their own issues with the way muscle building supplements are sold to them. The whole diet industry is a billion-dollar industry. I don't see it slowing down. It's interesting to look at it through the years where I have an old image of a some sort of concoction that a woman could buy because women back then didn't want to be skinny. And then, you know, fast forward a few decades and all of a sudden we can't be thin enough. But one of the images that we saw and laughed at, but really people take quite seriously, are these before and after images. So before, we're unhappy with ourselves, we're overweight, we take this product, we buy the product, and then the after image, everything is so much better, right? You not only have lost weight, but you've got a fuller head of hair. Maybe if it's a woman, she's got lipstick on, her teeth are white, she's smiling. How often, though, do you think individuals note those finer points in those before and after ads? Well, if they're media literate, they'll notice it right away. Our colleague, Jean Kilborn, wrote in one of her books that huge and powerful industries depend on a media illiterate population, and she specifically names the diet industry. And what's interesting is that almost every one of these ads uses a before and after image. So in in the before image, whether it's male or female, the expression on the person's face is sour or dour, and they're fat. And then in the after, they're smiling, they look happy, uh, they've lost lots of weight. And my advice, like yours, is you know, be skeptical. In fact, I use the letters A, B, S, always be skeptical. Don't believe what you see. These companies, some of them have millions, if not billions of dollars to get their message in front of your eyeballs. 
So that means radio and television, uh, the Internet, of course, uh, magazines and, and newspapers. So they want to spread that message to as a large uh, possible audience as they could be. Asking those media literacy questions, does this really work? Is there some reliable place that I could go to to research the, the validity, the veracity of the claims? And I'm not sure how many people are going to stop and do that. I think they're going to, they're going to be um, reacting too quickly. A colleague of mine recently told me about fast thinking, that, uh, that media comes at us fast, and we need to slow down and stop and reflect and think about all of these things. You know, uh, what is the small print in some of these messages say? Are there testimonials, for example? And, and are these real people? You know, there's some really incredible claims. You know, lose 50 pounds in three days. Come on, people. You know, um, ESPN has that slogan. Come on, man. I, I, I want to I yell the same thing when I see some of these ads. They're just, they're outrageous. I think... What's happening in the world we live in is that more and more people are calling out these advertisers, these marketers, these branders, and saying, come on, people, don't, don't believe everything that you see you read in here. And the Federal Trade Commission, which monitors uh, diet advertising, among other things, is really clear on their advice regarding these types of ads. You know, don't believe it especially if, if the claims are outrageous and incredible. Right. Frank, let me take one break because we're halfway through, and I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Mr. Frank Baker. He is an award-winning media education consultant who has been recognized for his lifelong work in media literacy education, and his website is www.frankw. Baker.com if you want to dive into this topic more. And I'm sure you will after we finish this conversation. It is so critically important that, as you say, we stop and we slow down. But when you're faced with an ad that says, you know, buy now, limited time offer, that's a very effective way to get us to move away from thinking and just go ahead and make that phone call or press those digits on your phone. Absolutely. So we have, like I said, we have a lot of work to do, and not just with young people, but with adults. And so today, as you know, we have fact checkers, and the fact checkers are doing an incredible job at trying to keep up with everything in the news, on social media, on video, and, and images as well. We need fact checkers for advertisements. And I'll just give you an example. I do a lot of work with toy commercials. And years and years ago, uh, while creating my website on toy advertising for teachers, I discovered a group called the Children's Advertising Review Unit, acronym C-A-R-U. And they are a division of the Better Business Bureau. So the Children's Advertising Review Unit is made up of children's advertisers, and they police themselves, and they have called out uh, others when they have found problems with a specific ad. So we need a C-A-R-U for these health ads. Right, exactly. I want to talk about the power of celebrity because it is used to sell many products. What is it about the celebrity image 
that is so powerful in selling, whether it's a weight loss product or a muscle building product, you name it, if there's a celebrity behind it, it's going to sell. I think the perfect example here is Oprah Winfrey, who joined the Weight Watchers organization and became um, a spokesperson, spokesmodel for that group. Well, Oprah had already built up an audience with her previous talk show of millions because her talk show was seen all over the country. And so she had built up a certain amount of respect and a certain amount of credibility. Well, now she's shrilling for uh, Weight Watchers. And we've all seen her weight go up and down. And the, the question is, well, this company is paying her to say these things. Would she say these things if she was not being paid? But to be honest, those sitting at home see Oprah Winfrey as somebody that they respect. And many people will look at a celebrity and say, well, if it's good enough for X, then it's probably good enough for me. And they don't stop and think about the total economics behind behind all of this. You know, if, if Diet Dr. Pepper paid me enough money, I would hold up that can and offer to do a Super Bowl commercial and be seen by 100 million people. And I'd love to watch the sales of Diet Dr. Pepper go up, even though drinking diet drinks is not the healthiest thing for anybody to do. But nobody tells you that it's not the healthiest thing for you to do. So it's clear why a company would go after a celebrity, because that increases their visibility and their brand, and it makes people feel good that they are also using the product that X uses. Right. You know, testimonials, you mentioned those briefly before. What is it about a testimonial? And first, describe what a testimonial is and tell us why they are so effective in selling any product under the sun. Well, you know, a testimonial is someone who is quoted about the product or the brand. And that someone could be you, it could be me, or it could be Oprah Winfrey, or it could be Tom Cruise. Testimonials are a, a way of associating the product with the person giving the testimonial, and, and they are powerful. They are one of the most powerful techniques of persuasion. Here's what I have found, though. Our schools, K-12, no longer teach the techniques of persuasion, also called propaganda techniques. And you're going to probably ask me, well, why do they not teach those why? techniques? Because they've all been wiped out by something called Common Core. So we now have 42 or 43 states that now teach the same thing at the same time. And there are no techniques of persuasion in Common Core. It's now called argument. And I have no argument with teaching argument. I think students ought to be able to make an argument and identify an argument. But to leave out the techniques of persuasion in a world in which the diet industry and the politicians and the, the car makers and McDonald's, everybody is using the persuasion industry to sell a product. Frank, that's frightening to me to think that the school districts would not stand up to that kind of erasure of curriculum that is so critical for, as you say, to have to have citizens 
graduating high school and being able to participate in society, I can't understand why why anybody would agree to taking that out of the curriculum. Well, I'm going to amplify that by saying media literacy is also not represented in the Common Core standards that 42 or 43 states teach. And in 2022, uh, to me, that's a crime because we all know the powerful influence of social media on young people's uh, mental health, uh, their physical health, and so much more. And so I'm happy that media literacy is strong in the health education teaching standards of all 50 states. And that's wonderful, but only if the teachers of health have been adequately trained in how to incorporate media literacy skills into the classroom. Right. Oh, my. We have a lot of work to do, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we sure do. Well, I know you're busy doing that. I want to ask a question related to media literacy education that I know you wanted to get to. And it's, it's a question that I like to ask a lot of my guests. And that is, especially when somebody has decades of experience under their belt, and they've been able to have the historical advantage of seeing where you started and where you are now, what is it that keeps you up at night in the media literacy world? Well, I am worried that media literacy is not represented in our standards. Having said that, there is a national movement called Media Literacy Now, which is working with representatives in all 50 states to attempt to get media literacy laws passed. And I applaud that effort. But there's a caveat. Many of the laws that are being considered are not media literacy. They're more digital literacy. They're more technology literacy. And so the real media literacy which I define as critical thinking about media messages. Real media literacy has gotten lost in the discussion. So, for example, I don't find the word representation in any of these state standards. And and so let me take a minute to just define what I mean by representation. In my work, I will throw up a photo of a horse on the screen and ask teachers and students, what is this? And they all say, it's a horse. And I have to disagree. It's not a horse. It's a photo of a horse. It represents the horse. So all media are representations. But we don't teach that in K-12. I don't see where stereotypes are addressed adequately. I don't see where propaganda is addressed adequately. And by propaganda, I mean something beyond World War One and World War Two. There is propaganda all over our world, yet it is not taught outside of the two world wars. So there's, again, a lot of work that needs to be happening. And I would say to your audience, if this is of concern to you, why are we not teaching media literacy in school? The next time you see a school board member or a principal or your child's teacher, ask them, are you teaching media literacy? And if they say, what's that, you better have a really good answer. But if, they're, if they say, no, we're not teaching it, then we, I need to ask, why not? Because this is 2022, and we can't afford to graduate more young people who can't be critical thinkers about their world. Right. What I love about media literacy 
is a simple set of questions that we can start by just raising awareness about our environment and how much of it has been, as you say, represented by others. And I wonder if you would just go through, we just have like five minutes left. I wonder if you could just go through some of those key questions that you think every student should be asking, whether they are evaluating an ad for a food product, a diet product, a muscle building product, a president, whatever. Absolutely. And several groups have created their list of media literacy questions. But I think almost all of them agree that one of the first questions we all need to consider is, what's the source? Who is the author? Do they have an agenda? I'll give you an example here. I use a pizza ad from a magazine, and I'll ask my audience, who created this ad? And on the the left-hand column of the ad, in very small font, is the owner, the brand of the pizza. And everybody says that that company is the creator of the ad. And I have to tell them, no, we don't know who the creator of the ad is. We never know who created the ad. We only see that end product. So we need to dive a little bit deeper. And the other the other question is, you know, what's the purpose of this message? And who is the message designed to appeal to? And one of my favorite questions is, what techniques is a media maker using to not only get my attention, but to make it believable? And so I'll go back to an example of the toy commercials in which the toy is for Disney's Cinderella Magic Talking Vanity, in which we see two little girls standing by the vanity. And the vanity in itself is only 24 inches tall, but it looks taller because of the way the commercial was shot. And so I want to stop that commercial and help students ask those kinds of questions. What techniques were they using? Where was the camera? Why did it look this way? Another phrase defining media literacy is healthy skepticism, healthy skepticism. Questions like, where did I see this message? You know, why, why is it in this magazine? Why is it on television? Who is it trying to reach? And what do they want me to do? Do they want me to go to a website? Do they want me to pick up the phone? These are, you know, ways I like to engage teachers and students in creating a media message. So in my work, we will analyze a media message, and then I'll have them create it. And what I'm doing here now is really just raising awareness of some of the things that they didn't know they were supposed to know. And and media literacy is a great way of enlightening our audience and Anybody can find the media literacy questions online, and if you're an educator, I suggest that you uh, print them out, enlarge them, and post them in the classroom and get students accustomed to asking those questions every time they encounter a media message as a way of engaging their critical thinking skills. That is great advice. And I am going to refer our listeners one more time to your excellent website, www.frankwbaker.com, where you can access many excellent media literacy resources right there. 
Frank, we've got to close because we are out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Frank Baker, award-winning media education consultant. He has taught hundreds of media literacy workshops for educators and students across the United States and internationally. You are recognized internationally for your excellent work, Frank, and I want to thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure to be with you. 